Welcome to Balance of Power on 1039-1450 WKXL and htalkradio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Kale, joined by our panel columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, and former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson. Last week, we previewed it. So this week, let's cover it. And what were the big takeaways that you guys have from the California recall vote, which turned into a resounding win for Governor Gavin Newsom? Alicia, did we learn anything? If we learned anything, we should have already known it. And that is a couple things. Number one. The recall system of California is dumb. Number two, if you want to win in California and oust a sitting governor, don't pit it against a Democrat versus Trump like because that's what they did. And it was a really silly strategy. And uh, Gavin Newsom, you know, maintained his position. California's a Democratic state with very rare exceptions over the years of like an Arnold Schwarzenegger being governor and whatnot for other reasons. But uh, I think we should, you know, blue states. Republicans in blue states might want to figure out that Trump-esque style politicking is not a winning strategy. Congressman Hodes? Well, it shows that that Democrats will come out um, if prodded sufficiently. Um, That, as Alicia says, I totally agree that Trumpism in blue states is not very popular. Now, if only that was true in red states, then Democrats would have even more of a problem. Because if Trumpism wasn't popular uh, in red states and Republicans uh, returned to being the conscientious minority, the opposition instead of the crazies, Democrats would have an even tougher time winning. So in some ways, it's probably okay that Trumpism is alive and well in the country. But I digress. Um, Gavin Newsom is not the world's greatest governor. He hasn't done the world's greatest job. But in a two to one Democratic state, uh, he survived a stupid recall effort um, that was the product of, I think, uh, dreaming on the part of a bunch of folks. And uh, the result in the end seems predictable, although Democrats, as Democrats do, were were wringing their hands and gnashing their teeth at the beginning of this. Matt, your thoughts on the uh, recall election? Well, Paul's right that at the beginning of this, Democrats were deeply concerned. And that concern carried through up until about a month ago, where early signs were showing that Democrats were not engaging and were not turning out. And there was a higher level of energy and enthusiasm behind the Republican side, the recall effort. And so the big question at that time was, would there be something that Democrats could do with all of the resources and money and national effort that was going to be put into trying to get Democratic voters to show up? Would there be anything that Democrats could actually do to get Democrats to engage? That's a critical question. It's not just a layup. It's great to be in a deeply Democratic, blue-leaning state, but voters have to actually show up. And we've seen the story before when that doesn't happen, what do you get? You get Republican results. You get what we've seen in midterm elections for many cycles now, with the exception of 2018, which is you get Republican 
wipeouts. And so the fact that this didn't happen, there is a little bit more of a set of tea leaves to read here. And the big takeaway is what Alicia was saying is it is still in 2021 a winning strategy to tie Republicans to Trumpism and Donald Trump himself. Now, of course, Republicans didn't do themselves any favors by making their avatar Larry Elder, who is a very Trumpy kind of guy, but it worked. And the key aspect that the Biden White House and Democrats across the country, I guarantee you, are looking closely at right now is Newsom engaged on COVID. It's what got him in trouble in the first place when he went to that high-end restaurant and was seen eating without a mask in defiance of his own order. And it's what got him out of trouble when he said, look, this is me fighting COVID against COVID vaccine mask deniers. And that strategy worked. And we talked last week about why the Biden White House would go down the road of vaccine mandates and we said it's because they're not losing anyone with that who wasn't already against them. And they're probably gaining people who are on the fence. And lo and behold, in the exit polls, it showed that, that, that a majority of independent voters who had gotten vaccinated voted with Newsom. So this was a, a winning strategy. 64% of vaccinated independent voters opposed the recall. The final thing I'll say is that we were watching closely for would there be a continuation of the trend that we saw in 2020 of the softening of Latino support for Democrats. We don't have enough data at this point to say for sure, but there are some preliminary signs that that softening has continued, that Democratic performance is down, that he'd won 64% of Latino voters when he was elected governor three years ago, the initial figures show that his support was down to about 60%. And that is a big deal. That is a huge deal for Democrats' long-term hopes and should be a red flag for their efforts going forward. Well, it was a strange week for the pro-Trump movement. On one hand, the Justice for J6 event planned in Washington fizzled with few showing up for a rally to support the January 6th, violent insurrectionists, but Trump claimed a victory of sorts when Representative Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio, one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach him, announced that he is dropping out of his re-election primary fight against former Trump aide Max Miller. Now, the reason, he says, is the threats of violence against his family and how unpleasant it would be to return to, and I quote here, a Trump-dominated House Republican caucus, end quote. So, Congressman Hodes, what can we draw from these two events? Well, the, uh, there were some interesting pictures, certainly, on, uh, on television about the January 6th um, re-protest. There were about, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 or 75 people milling about in T-shirts and short sleeve shirts and shorts and and smiling and beaming. And and they were facing an army of National Guard members in full riot gear, basically shoulder to shoulder, rigging the Capitol behind barbed wire and barriers made out of giant trucks and concrete and the Capitol looked like it was protected against Armageddon. 
And, uh, you know, the correspondents were out there saying, well, the organizers wanted media coverage. So I guess they're getting their media coverage. And there's a few of those Trump folks out there. And golly, this is a little bit different than January 6th. And if only uh, the National Guard had had the presence on January 6th that they are having today, uh, we'd be in, in the world would be a very, very different place. So, so the, the support the January 6th protesters uh, apparently designed, uh, designed to call attention to the harsh treatment that was being meted out or, and will be meted out to those who ransacked the Capitol resulting in deaths and dismemberment, injury, um, uh, that the harsh treatment that's being meted out was unfair and unjust. And I would say that that fizzled entirely. Now, that doesn't mean that Trumpism is dead, and it doesn't mean that the Trump acolytes are done. It doesn't mean that the efforts of uh, folks at every level to create havoc in our electoral system is done. Um, clearly the unpleasantness in the Republican caucus is so extreme that even a right-wing representative found it too toxic for him to take. Um, If if that means it's a triumph for Trump, um, well, we'll give him him that victory. Hopefully it will turn out to be a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, And if in the primary for that seat, some Yahoo is elected who rides along on the wave of Trump-type Republican behavior. Uh, It will just add another idiot to the ranks of the Republican Congressional Caucus. Alicia? You know, the J6 rally um, confused me from the get-go because the people that are, and I have said, and this, I, I hope solidified um, this reality, the very extreme small group of people who are very loud, who uh, supported the January 6th insurrection or denied that it was Trump supporters who did it, uh, they confused me because then they come out and they want to support the people that did it on January 6th after spending the last eight, nine months saying it wasn't them to begin with. It was Antifa. It was, you know, liberals in disguise trying to you know, do a gotcha on them. And so the whole concept is confusing to begin with, but I'm glad that people didn't show up. I think it is proof that this extremist wing, and I'm not going to call them of the Republican Party because they don't support Republican concepts, ideals, or Republicanism. They support Donald Trump unto himself. And that's why only, what, a couple hundred, I guess I saw in one report showed up. Uh, And so you know, I think that was a spotlight that it is waning, that Trump before idealism or conservatism is waning. And I'm glad to see that. I also think it's because we all have seen the images now for so many months of what happened on January 6th and don't want to be part of supporting that. Maybe I'm a little Pollyanna thinking that, but that's in part what I think. As for this congressman, you know, Paul nailed it with the word toxic. When we we teach our children, you know, if they're in an environment where it's toxic, where they're being bullied, where people are nasty, um, the most mature thing to do isn't to fight back. The most mature thing to do is just walk away from that environment. Why stay and participate in something that you can't do your job, you're unhappy, your family's being threatened? I'm not sure I would call it a victory for Trump that a sitting United States congressman says, 
you guys are so whacked. You're threatening the safety of my family. I'm peacing out. Have at it, guys. I don't think that's a victory for anybody. Can I ask a question? Because I, you, you're a really smart person, and Alicia, you, you're just, you're, you're one of the smartest people I know, and you are a person I would call say of of conscience. You have shown yourself on this show to be an old-fashioned Republican in in many ways. You you have exalted the principles of what used to be traditional Republicanism in terms of uh, socially moderate and fiscally responsible and engaged in the world, but not bellicose. I mean, you really, you know, it's, it's, it's really wonderful to do a show with somebody who represents the best of the Republican party. Now, as a Democrat, you're very scary. I mean, you're scary because the best of the Republican Party is really scary to Democrats because Democrats are on the thin edge. They can't we can't keep ourselves together. We go in 12 directions, as I'm sure we'll talk about a little later. But when you say that the the caucus, the Republican caucus and the whack jobs who are populating it don't represent the Republican Party, are you are you living in? Are you ad- adhering to a never, never land view of where we are? Because they are the Republican Party. You you say, well, it's all they're all about Trump. They're not Republicans, but that is the Republican Party. And and your intelligent and heartfelt defenses, uh, defense of traditional Republican values is really heartwarming to me. I, 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 it, it, I, I appreciate hearing it. And I know that there are probably 12 people who are call themselves Republicans and Americans in America today who agree with you. But the Republican Party has become clearly the party of Trump and Trumpism. Um, and even if Trump fades, this radical right-wing crazy agenda, we're now seeing it in New Hampshire, um, as we saw in Texas, uh, we're seeing it all over the country. The Republican Party has morphed. It may be time for you to think about whether you really are a Republican or you're something else. And if you decide, I just want to extend this invitation. If you decide that you're something else and that you can't defend the indefensible anymore, come on over. The Democratic Party has a big tent. We'll we'll accept you as a as a center right as a center right adherent of the Democratic Party, and we will welcome you with open arms. Maybe it's time. Well, first, thank you for all the very nice, kind words you said about me, and for the invitation and knowing I would be welcome. Let me start with the latter before I go to the original your original comments. Uh, I'm not going anywhere. I've told Republicans this who tried to tell me to leave the party under Trump when I was critical of them. I'm not going anywhere because I believe in the ideals of conservatism, of compassionate conservatism, of humanity. I believe in what we are supposed to be as a party and the ideals we represent. I don't believe there is any one man, woman, dog alive, maybe a dog, that I would support individually from a political standpoint if they swayed away from what our ideals are, no matter how I don't approve of that politician's words. If 
I guess what I'm trying to say is if a politician will support the ideals that represent what I believe we should represent, I can support that person. If a person doesn't or they're not humane or kind, I'm not going to support that person. And I'm not going anywhere in the Republican out of the Republican Party because I think there are more of us than the very vocal others who are not necessarily representative of our belief system. As for your point, which is well taken, Look, there. I remember months back we were talking about Kevin McCarthy and whether, you know, he had a problem. And the problem was, you know, to have to follow the Trump influence. And I said, I don't think he's got the problem he thinks he has because the American public is not in the same bubble in Washington, D.C. and in Congress. They're so insulated. They think that this you got to support Trump. Or we won't get reelected. We got to support Trump. or We won't get reelected. They think that that's real. I don't think that's real. I don't think the people that vote for them, the American public, are looking at that in large part because there's a good chunk of Republicans that are not going to vote two years later on the same things they voted on in 2020. They're not going to vote based on Trump. And did you support him? Did you not? Oh, that's where I'm going to place my vote. They're not, you know, half of the Republicans aren't going to vote that way. And then, as we've said before, then you've got the others. You've got the people in the middle. You've got the independents who actually make all the decisions for who's going to be in Congress in this country, certainly in most states and in New Hampshire, those independents are the sway vote and they're not going to vote based on whether someone supported Trump or not. They may vote if they supported Trump, they may vote against them. But there's not a lot of independents that are so diehard for Trump that they're going to vote against the person in that respect. So I think Washington thinks they have a problem they don't have when it comes to the support of Trump. And I think we're going to start seeing as elections start popping up in, you know, special elections, and we've got in a year, we've got the 2022 midterms. I think we're going to see the influence is waning. It is not there. And Congress better follow step and understand what the American people care about. And right now, it's that food costs are out of control. It's that gasoline is out of control. It's that we've got a raging pandemic that's not going away. It's that we've got a refugee situation in the United States. We've got to get under control and handle both from the southern border and from the Afghanis that are coming in. And these are all responsibilities America has taken on. We got global problems. I know we're going to talk about later with our foreign allies. We got some big fish to fry. And whether three years ago you said you liked or didn't like Donald Trump, that ain't going to be on the ballot. Well, Matt, your thoughts on the week that was for the pro-Trump movement? Well, I want to get to the point Alicia was just making. And, you know, it was it, it was it was really well said, but I think it's aspirational. And I know we're coming up on a radio break, so I, I may have to I may have to set this up and then do a classic radio tease. But look, in 1984, there was a movie called Breakin'. It was not a work of art. It was about breakdancing and it was of limited commercial success. And apparently the producers of that movie thought it was such a great idea that they had to make a second one. It was called Break in Two Electric Boogaloo. And I bring all this up because of Paul's point that the original violent insurrection was apparently such a raging success that the folks behind it said, well, we've got to bring this back. Now there's a connection here to what Alicia was saying. The idea of a boogaloo became so inspirational to white, to, to right-wing white supremacists that they named themselves the Boogaloo Boys. That's where that group gets its name. The idea of bringing back this explosion of insurrection. 
what I'm arguing is that Republicans have grabbed the wolf by the ears and they have been trying desperately over the last 10 years and especially over the last five years to hold on lest the wolf turn around and consume them. And I'm not as optimistic as Alicia is that they're going to be successful. We saw the first version of this with the Tea Party in 2010. Republicans intentionally and behind the scenes, this has been well reported, the former House Majority Leader Dick Armey was behind the money groups through the Koch network that created a grass tops movement to unleash the Tea Party and the summer of town halls and all of the ferment that that created. And at first, Republicans loved it, this kind of grassroots enthusiasm rising up against the first Black American president. But it turned around and that, that, and that movement came to consume the Republican Party. We saw it with candidates emerging in 2012 and 2014 who were completely unpalatable to the majority of the American public. And we're seeing the same thing with the Trump movement now. Now, there are desperate efforts by Republicans to try to put that genie back in the bottle. We saw it just this past week that the Republican Main Street Caucus, a kind of business-focused traditional Republican organization of Republican members of the House, has tried to reform. Former Congressman Charlie Bass, who Paul knows very well, used to be the chair of that group, kind of moderate centrist Republicans. But it's not clear that they're going to be able to persist in this environment. And indeed, what we're seeing at kind of a grassroots level is this kind of unleashing of the Boogaloo Boys type culture in the Republican Party. We're seeing across the country, a teacher in California attacked by a parent over masks, a man stabbed and a reporter assaulted in Los Angeles during a vaccine protest, an Iowa man sentenced to a decade in prison over a mask fight. We're seeing episodes of violence and we're seeing Republican politicians around the country kind of getting on the Trump bandwagon when it comes to saying that our democratic elections are rigged and illegitimate. Not just Larry Elder in California, but uh, state senators in Pennsylvania and uh, other states trying to remake the disastrous Arizona recount and follow in the footsteps of Trump. So Alicia, I hope you're right, really, for the health of the, of the Republic and the Republican Party. I hope you're right and that the Republican Party in the country finds its way back to a level of sanity. But I'm pessimistic. I am not sure that what was unleashed over the last decade and that Trump accelerated like gasoline on a fire, I'm not sure that that is going to go away as a major factor in Republican politics, especially and we may be living in the age of the Boogaloo Boys for a long time. Well, we are entering what will perhaps be the biggest two weeks of Joe Biden's presidency. Let's talk about foreign affairs first. Uh, Biden is hosting the U.N. meeting this week with massive issues like COVID and global warming on the table. Senate hearings are going on over the withdrawal from Afghanistan with Democrats in many cases being as critical as Republicans. The U.S. admitted that a drone strike in Afghanistan killed civilians, including children, and not the ISIS-K leader it was aiming for. And France is recalling its ambassador to the United States over a deal 
among the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. to supply submarines. So what does Biden need to accomplish in the next two weeks? What would success look like? And what would failure look like, Alicia? <laughs> well, failure would look like today. Uh, I mean, it, it, he hasn't had a good little run here. I watched his speech to the United Nations. Um, it wasn't anything exciting in any direction. I, you know, Republicans are going to hate it. Democrats are going to love it for the most part. I personally am not a fan on the global, on the international stage of, you know, his theme of America is back as a patriot. I don't think America went anywhere. I think presidents, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, can make mistakes, can do things I don't like. That's why we have elections. Doesn't change the foundation of who we are as a nation. And I don't like the theme. Um, but, you know, we've got some problems. And, you know, this whole submarine deal with Australia and the UK and the um, Indo-Pacific region, I get and I actually appreciate that Joe Biden's job is to and his administration's job is to do what is in the best strategic interest of the United States. I get that. If that means the deal with the UK and Australia, I will support that, even if that means kicking France to the curb because they're not a strategic part of it. But we didn't talk to them. It's something as simple as one of our biggest allies in the world. We didn't give a heads up to. And Macron is mad. So he pulled his ambassadors out of both Australia and out of the United States. That's a big deal. I mean, it's not a big deal that's going to affect me in the grocery stores type stuff, which is more important to my day-to-day -day life. But it is still a big deal when it comes to our European allies. So I think he had a bad week. I don't know what success is because I do not see um, Congress managing to get on the same page with these you know, budget deals. I, I don't see this, you know, we're going to raise the debt ceiling and do this all at the same time. I mean, Elizabeth Warren was out today saying all these have to be packaged as one as one big deal, even if we have to, even if you guys have to vote on them separately. Um, I, I don't, and we've talked about before, I don't like big deals like that. It's too expensive. There's too much going on in all these reconciliation bills and other bills they're looking at. I don't see a path forward for Congress in the next 48 hours. Nancy Pelosi said that's the critical time. So I think we're looking at a fall of failure for Joe Biden. Paul Oates. Uh, my name is uh, Monsieur Macron. I am taking my baguette and I'm going home. I'm not going to talk to Monsieur Bédin. Uh, he won't talk to me. He should have talked to me. Uh, I'm very, very unhappy. And my people are going to go home to their uh, salad miswas right away. Um, listen, it's uh, another week. Uh, another week in the world. Um, there are... There are there's lots going on. Uh, Biden is a Biden has a busy, busy time and he is facing a host, as Alicia says, of of real issues. Um, it's a win some, lose some situation, as it often is uh, in the world uh, with presidents. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to hear what went into the decision to cut a deal with the UK and Australia without um, uh, without involving the EU. There must have been, I'm assuming there were calculations um, and decisions and that it wasn't just, you know, sort of stupid bumbling. That's what I, that's, that's what happened in the Trump era, uh, stupid bumbling at every, at every turn. And uh, frankly, the uh, Alicia's point about America is back um, and America never left. Uh, that is that is uh, perhaps um, 
nice rhetoric. But if you take a look at what Trump did, tried to pull out, he tried to pull out of everything and make America go it alone. When he scorned our allies, he, he he basically followed a scorched earth policy of dealing with our traditional allies and our traditional policies. He was an aber he was an aberrant aberration in um in a long arc of American involvement in the world. Uh, so Biden saying America is back has real resonance, I think. Now, he says America's back and then France gets upset and pulls out its baguettes. So, so, so that's, that's an issue, you know, I mean, the French, no, nobody bakes baguettes like, like the French and, you know, they'll get over it. We'll get over it. We'll talk. We'll, um, we'll, we'll go have some bouillabaisse and everybody will be happy again in the end. Biden's speech at the UN was an important speech. Uh, he pointed out the world is at an inflection point with multiple crises from foreign policy to COVID to climate change, by the way, people, an existential problem for humanity, which needs to be addressed on a global basis. And Biden's uh, bill, the huge reconciliation package, addresses many crises in, 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 in large scale and in large, large terms. The New York Times, yeah, the New York Times said it is almost as if President Franklin D. Roosevelt had stuffed his entire New Deal into one piece of legislation. Uh, or if President Lyndon Johnson had done the same with his great society instead of pushing through individual components over, over several years. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, the perhaps one of the biggest challenges the president faces is within his own party, because we're Democrats and we don't belong to an organized party. We want to make sure that whatever happens, we are at each other's throats uh, and threaten the ag an agenda for the American people uh, any way we can, whether it's left, right, or or center, uh, ranging from AOC uh, refusing to allow the property tax deduction uh, for upper income people to go through uh, in a fit of progressive peak or the moderates and more conservative members objecting to the size of the package. But the package that Biden is proposing has been his agenda since the beginning of his political career. Um, the tax uh, implications of the package, which uh, cut taxes for lower and middle income people and raise taxes on high income people uh, is a substantial pay for that pays for this package. It is it, it, it basically represents the entire democratic agenda from soup to nuts. It's is it ambitious? Yes. Uh, is it foolhardy? Probably not. Um, it can go as reconciliation. In fact, it probably must go as reconciliation because it will never pass as pieces. Um, the timing is critical. Um, Biden's administration misstepped on the execution of the withdrawal from Afghanistan in a big way. It left nobody, nobody happy. Um, not Democrats, not Republicans, not people around the world, and probably not Biden. I mean, nobody, nobody could have been happy with the scenes. Um, and th the world is a messy place. Uh, but Biden's package uh, is an important package. And the Democrats, I think, will come together around most of it. Um, I expect it to pass 
in substantial form, and it will be really good for America because it's really needed. Matt? Just staying on the foreign policy theme, I call shenanigans on the whole idea that we're in a mess here right now and that everything is spiraling out of control. This is a this is a narrative that it's being pushed by Republicans for kind of self-serving political purposes. Your question, Ken, was how would we judge success or failure? I would suggest that the next two weeks is not the time to do that. That's awfully myopic. The way to judge success or failure is I'd like to look back at this time period in five years, because what Biden is trying to do on the international stage right now is a lot of super hard and strategic stuff. Several presidents now have talked about getting out of Afghanistan. Biden actually did it. Was the withdrawal itself over the course of those painful few weeks, was it messy? Was it, was it painful? Did aspects go badly? Yes. But the question is, are we going to look back in five years and say America is better off because he got it done? The short-term anger from the French, uh, sorry, Alicia, I I disagree. I don't think that would have been mitigated much if we had called them a week earlier and said, hey, look, (laughs) we're going to really mess with you guys. You're going to hate this, but we're giving you advanced warning. I'm breaking up with you, but I I don't want you to find out like next week, I'm going to tell you now, it's going to be terrible. You're going to hate it. No way. Shenanigans, shenanigans. They were always going to hate this. Was this the right strategic move? Absolutely. First of all, commercially for the U.S., it's a $66 billion deal. But beyond that, the type of submarines that the French were going to supply are basically short range coastal submarines that are good tactically for defending the borders around Australia. That's not what China is looking to contest. The long term strategic push here is to try to contain and create a counterweight to China, which means you need the longer range nuclear submarines that the US is going to supply. Is that the right thing strategically? Are we gonna look back in five years and say that was the right thing to do? Yes, we are. And then, you know, in terms of climate change, in terms of providing vaccines to the world, it, it's come out that this, this week that just 20% of people in low and lower middle income countries have received a first dose of the vaccine. And Biden is calling for 70% to be achieved within the next year. All right, well, let's let's see if we can get close to that over the next year. And let's look back in five years at both of those questions. So I think the answer to, to, to all of this, Ken, is we really need to wait and see. But I don't think that most people behind the scenes removed from politics disagree with a lot of the strategy involved here. Oh, Matt, you know, you are you are making a point about the French submarines, which I disagree with. You have never been on a French submarine and experienced the cuisine, the fromage, the wine, the, the wine. We, we serve wonderful things on our French submarines, which you Americans cannot hope to compete with. Should you have, uh, you should have uh, experienced our submarine before you 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 begin because of course the submarine sandwich comes from the French baguette, which you slice and make the sandwich. So that your point, I'm sorry, is not at all objective. You are simply an apologist for the Biden. I, all of this is just making me think of someone pointing out to Inspector Clouseau that he was smoking the wrong end of the cigarette. I know I'm smoking the wrong end. 
Sorry, Alicia, you were going to say something not no. French. <laughs> First of all, I think that this program, the greatest benefit and the most enjoyment in this program is Matt's movie references and Paul's interpretations. It just wouldn't be the same without it. And I appreciate that for both of you. Now I need to come up with my own shtick. But Matt, you're right that France and Macron probably would have pounded their feet and gotten out anyway. But here's where the Biden mis- administration always makes a mistake. It's on the PR front. The French government gets to come out and say, you didn't even tell us and we're your ally. That's a really bad narrative. Yeah, that's a layup. Yeah, You know, it's like, even if they did everything and France got mad, most Americans, myself included, would be like, sorry, you lost 50 billion. We got 66. You know, that's how it works. So the Biden administration's problem again and again and again is understanding public relations. Well, you know, that's that's an interesting point. I I remember once on Capitol Hill. Uh, when I was working for Paul, we, we had a little we had a little snafu with a statement to the press. I can't remember, honestly, if it was a statement that the office put out or something, Paul, that you, that you said in an interview. But I got taken to task by Rahm Emanuel's right hand man who called me to the carpet and said, this is a and I'm going to delete the expletives from this. This is a bleeping staff problem. You bleeped this up because Ultimately, this comes down to bleeping staff competence, et cetera. And essentially, he was making the same point you were, which is, look, you can't control some of these things. Yeah, you you and I agree. The French were going to be angry here, okay? The French were going to be angry, rightfully. No no one's going to blame them for that. But it's true. You would love to see the people working for the president execute a little bit more skillfully on some of these things. Well, as Paul uh, alluded to moments ago, the uh, domestic side for Biden is equally consequential, if not more so. His legislative agenda is getting finalized in Congress and threats are flying back and forth among Democrats. Uh, Moderates warn that if the infrastructure bill gets delayed past September 27th or fails in the House, the big reconciliation bill with all of the Democrats' other priorities is done for. But progressives have threatened almost the opposite, to block the infrastructure bill unless it's paired with a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, which isn't ready yet. And don't forget, Democrats need to raise the debt ceiling and keep the government funded, too. And Alicia, uh, same question. What does Biden need to do over the next two or three weeks to call him a success? And what would be a failure? I think it's a little bit out of his hands at this point. I mean, I don't see this all coming together. I mean, like I referenced before, you even have Elizabeth Warren out there saying it has to be all or nothing. All or nothing is not going to be achieved. The Senate is not going to allow all or nothing. So if they stick their feet in the sand and carry on with that, it's going to be nothing. And yet again, now this is not the first time under a president we have raised the debt ceiling or we have had to have stopgap orders to fund our government or had to have a government shutdown. And it is a bipartisan problem, but it never looks good on whomever's in the White House when that happens. And, you know, what influence does he have over the members of his own party? I'm not sure, but the influence is not going to be to get the moderates to go way left. It's going to have to be to get some of those on the left to swing a little more to the center. And that's a difficult thing to achieve, but that's the only way any of this stuff succeeds. Otherwise it will be a giant failure. Paul, any additional thoughts? 
no, you know, we're Democrats. We we'll, 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 we'll moan and gnash our teeth and wring our hands and fight. And in the end, uh, Nancy will get out her big ruler and wrap everybody's knuckles. Whack, 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 whack. And um, uh, people will will line up and some form of this is is going to get passed and it's going to be good for the country. And then we'll all look back and from from history, history ongoing and say, my God, what a brilliant, brilliant package that was. And what a great idea Biden had to use his power while he had it to actually do something good for America. Matt Robeson. I agree with um, most of what Paul just said, actually, and most of what Alicia just said, um, I, I can't pretend to do the sound effect of uh, Nancy hitting people, the ruler quite as well, because Paul's actually been in the room when Nancy Pelosi has been doing these things. And I, I, people, you got to believe this. I mean, this is this is inside the room information you're getting from former Congressman Paul Hodes. Uh, this this is is pretty tricky. Um you know, I, to some degree, when you hear these kinds of stories coming out, Paul is right. There is posturing going on here. Why on earth would you give away any of your leverage by saying, well, we this is our position, but we are going to fold on it. We're going to fold faster than Superman on laundry day because we're not serious. Right. So, of course, you're going to say in the course of the negotiation, we mean it. We will take all of this down. And there is a little bit of brinksmanship going on here. No one is sure quite how serious this is. I do tend to agree that when push comes to shove, this is going to all get done. But it is tricky. And Alicia is right. The direction that this is going to have to go is progressives are going to have to give here. And I think they know that. I think deep down they know that. They already, it, the writing has been on the wall for a long time. They're not getting. 3.5 trillion. They're not getting that. They they know that. And they know that the infrastructure bill is a big win. And if they have any strategic sense, they need to give that to this administration. If the infrastructure bill goes down for real, if it's not passed over the course of the next year, if basically Democrats unified control of all of the chambers of Congress and the presidency doesn't deliver anything and they're running into the midterms with that, then they they know as much as they've kind of kidded themselves, like, well, we can run smart campaigns on social media. As long as they, they know, the progressives know that they need this in order to have any hope of maintaining majorities. So I, I do think it will get done, but it is going to be a painful set of sleepless nights for Democrats over the next couple of weeks. And there is a chance that this doesn't all come together. Well, in the minute or so we have left this week in COVID, uh, good news in terms of vaccinating children with Pfizer announcing positive results from their study of administering the vaccine to kids 5 to 11. And after uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced a new mandate for the military, the number of troops that have received at least their shot, at least one shot, uh, has gone from 76 to 89% in just three weeks. Any quick reactions uh, from those findings? Yay. 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 <laughs> All good news. All good news. Uh, I'm looking forward to my kids getting vaccinated ASAP. And uh, hey, you know, um, hey, folks, let, how about we all say it together in unison? 
to all our listeners, we're, we're all kinds of different political perspectives here. Can we all agree? Please, people, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please yes, get, vaccinated. get vaccinated. Please. <laughs> it's and on that note, <laughs> on that positive note, that'll do it for this edition of Balance of Power. For Alicia Preston, Paul Hodes, and Matt Robeson, I'm Ken Kale. We'll see you next time on Balance of Power.